Dean, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favouritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognised that I'd been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, that's to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been uh, commissioned to preach to the circumcised, the Jews. For God who has worked in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised will also work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Kephas and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognised the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. So Paul obviously thinks that this meeting up in Jerusalem is a really critical engagement for the, for the Galatians to understand. That they all shook hands and basically said, we've got the same message, we're not going to make Titus get circumcised and Paul, you, you go out there and fundamentally you move amongst the Gentiles and we'll put our concentration on working amongst the circumcised, the Jews, and, and let's, be, let's, let's work in partnership. Uh, but there was no conflict uh, between them or, and no uh, division over their gospel. But the first sort of negative note in the story comes in verse 11. When Kephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. Now this is really extraordinary, isn't it? The great apostle Peter suddenly backs off from having a meal with Gentiles because he's worried about offending Jews. He's worried about breaking the food laws and being regarded as somehow contaminated because he eats with the Gentiles. How did Peter get into this position? And Barnabas joined him. And only Paul stood firm and said, wait a minute, there can't be any divisions amongst Christians over things like food and drink and circumcision. We're all one in Christ Jesus. What are you doing? When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Kephas in front of them all, you are a Jew and yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you can force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? You're a hypocrite, in effect, is what he's saying. Now this incident at Antioch, which is uh, in Syria, this incident was obviously a very critical one in Paul's experience and in his relationship with the Jerusalem apostles. And Paul goes straight on from telling the story to talk theology. For the first time he really gets into the theology of the gospel and this little passage at the end of chapter 2 is really a purple passage, a wonderful exposition of justification by faith and how it relates to the issue of the Jewish law. So let me read to you uh, from verse 15 to the end. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not, any, and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But as in seeking to be justified in Christ we Jews find ourselves also amongst the sinners. Doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. 
The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Now this really introduces us to the heart of the theological problem as far as Paul is concerned. It's not just a question of food and drink and circumcision. It's a question of how you get right with God, how you are justified. And if you start raising up these practical issues that uh, some of these uh, brothers were doing, then what you're doing is confusing the gospel and confusing people. And in the end, you're taking their focus off Christ and the cross and the grace of God and you're putting them onto human endeavour. And the big problem for people from a Jewish background is, well, what do we do with the law? God gave the law to Israel, it's a precious gift to Israel. Are we meant to just abandon it? Shouldn't we make these Gentiles follow the law if they're going to be part of God's holy people? A legitimate question, wasn't it? Important question. So as Paul begins to move into this issue theologically, uh, we realise that this is uh, this is something that's very important for the Galatians to understand. Now that's really the end of the second main section. Paul has taken the opportunity to talk about his authority as an apostle of Christ, his relationship with the Jerusalem apostles, that amazing incident at Antioch where he had to stand up and, and criticise Peter and, and his buddy Barnabas. And then as he moves into the centre of the argument, he starts talking theology, he starts talking about justification by faith alone. The very heart of this letter is uh, Paul's defence of the gospel of grace. That's chapter 3 verse 1 all the way through to chapter 5 verse 12. And Paul doesn't mince his words. He begins by saying, Oh you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain? So again I ask you, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So this really takes us into the heart of Paul's message. How did you begin the Christian life, he says? Well, you responded to the Gospel, didn't you? The Gospel about the crucified Jesus. And you received the Holy Spirit. Now, where do you think you go after that? Do you think you need to add something to that? I mean, even if it's the law of Moses, do you need to add circumcision and food laws and, and festivals and all the other stuff in the law? Do you need that for salvation? Or is the cross enough? Is believing in the cross enough? But more than that, how do you finish the Christian life? Having begun the Christian life with the Gospel and the Holy Spirit, how do you reach the end? How do you, how do you finish? Not just in terms of staggering to the end, but actually living a holy life and pleasing God. So we're going to see as the, uh, as the letter goes on that Paul's concerned about these two issues, how you become a Christian, but also how you continue and grow as a Christian, how you uh, live a holy life and, and persevere in faithfulness. Now what he does in order to um, support his argument is first of all to go back and explain all about Abraham from the Old Testament. 
And he does this because the Jews were fixed on Moses and the law. And they saw this as just sort of the, the unbreakable foundation of everything. And, and, and unless you could deal with the law and, and, and satisfactorily engage with the law, then you, you couldn't really be right with God. And Paul says, wait a minute, you've got to go back behind that. You've got to go back to Abraham, Genesis. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. This is what God said, all nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. That's a quote from Genesis back to Abraham. The law is not based on faith, but on the contrary it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Now you see what Paul's doing here? He's saying we've got to go back to square one. What is God's foundational revelation about the salvation of the world? It is that Abraham will be the father of many nations. And how's that going to happen? When people share the faith of Abraham. Where does the law fit in? Well, he's got a lot more to say about that, but just for the moment he has a very negative picture. What's the purpose of the law? To judge, to bring people under the curse. So who wants to go back under the law? That's a, a very negative view of the law and yet he's trying to be realistic with them. He goes on to say that uh, when somebody makes a covenant, as we know in human terms, if you make any kind of a covenant, you go through a legal process, um, you, you can't add to that later on in a way that um, will take away from the original requirement. And so he's saying when, when the law came, it wasn't to destroy the fundamental way of relating to God that, that was spoken to Abraham. In fact, he goes on to talk about uh, the ultimate fulfilment of the promise to Abraham in Christ, who is the offspring, the seed to whom God was speaking when he spoke to Abraham. Why was the law given, he says in verse 19? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. In other words, God sent the law in positive terms to teach people about his character and will and purpose but also to reveal sin and to show people their need for a saviour so that when Jesus came they'd truly recognise this was God's answer to their problem. So he goes on to talk about um, more about the law and God's purpose in, in giving the law but ultimately he says where it was heading was faith and the Son of God, uh, faith and salvation through grace, through the gospel. So when he gets to verse 26 he says So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptised into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So... <laughs> Just to stop for a moment, you can see that what he's really saying is 
you don't have to worry about keeping the law of Moses because that was a kind of a temporary program within the broader scope of salvation history. What God said he was going to do in the beginning was save the nations through Israel and the offspring, which is Christ, and this is always going to be by faith. So don't get the things mixed up. You're not being called to be Jews, you're being called to be sons and daughters of Abraham to come back into that original promise uh, that was given to Abraham back in the book of Genesis. And as he moves into chapter 4 and finishes this sort of long section about law and promise in the purpose purpose of God, um, he has this wonderful um, summary of what God has done. Let me read from chapter 4 verse 4. When when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit he calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child, and since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. And what Paul is saying is that the Jews needed to be rescued from the law, from the law's condemnation, from the law's control, because the law in the end was not the answer to the human problem. The law could not deal with the problem of human sin. But God has sent his son to die on the cross to deal with the problem, the the payment for sin, and he sent his Holy Spirit to make it possible for people to have a living relationship with him and to produce the fruit that he talks about, as you know, in Galatians chapter 5. So as as Galatians move on, we begin to see more and more the importance of the Holy Spirit, Christ's redemptive work, but also the sending of the Holy Spirit. And we'll tie that all together in a few moments. So by the time we get to chapter 4, we realise that Paul uh, is, is really concerned about these Galatians and the tendencies he sees amongst them. So uh, in chapter 4, verse 8, he addresses them again and um, is worried about the things that he sees going on in their, in their churches. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me because I became like you. And he goes on to talk about the the way in which he came amongst them as as someone who had some kind of illness or there's something wrong with him that made people look at him with askance and, and, and perhaps withdraw from him. And yet... That they rejoiced when they heard his gospel. They welcomed him. They didn't worry about his outward appearance because they were so overjoyed uh, to receive his, his truth. And now he says, what's happened? What, what's changed our relationship? You can see he has a very personal uh, feeling for these Galatians. He really wants to win them back. He doesn't want them to get lost in all these sort of religious activities like keeping seasons and food laws and, and so on. He wants to keep them on the track of faith in the gospel and um, of um, walking by the Holy Spirit. When he gets to the end of uh, chapter 4, he gives perhaps the most remarkable illustration in his whole uh, writings, where he talks about Hagar and Sarah, the two uh, women who represent the two different covenants, the old covenant which leads into slavery, and the new covenant which leads into freedom and the Holy Spirit. Uh, I'm not going to go into details about that uh, allegory at the moment, unless you really want to push me on it. So the final section of the letter um, is where he really reveals what has been going on 
in the Galatian church. We've had hints coming through. We've seen it in chapter 4 there about food laws and, and, and uh, about seasons and so on. But now we realise that circumcision is the big issue. Let me just read to you uh, the first little part of chapter 5. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is required to obey the whole law. You can't just pick and choose. If you're going to go down that track, you've got to adopt the whole thing. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace because you think it all depends on what you do. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And that's a wonderfully important verse because not only is he saying circumcision is, is, is a false trail but he's also saying the real truth is that faith will express itself in love and if that's where the Holy Spirit is leading you are, you are being led into a pathway of holiness and fulfilment which is what the law was all about in the first place. So he says, uh, who has been stopping you from running the race? Uh, this is a very dangerous situation that you're in and uh, he, he urges them to pull back from it. And uh, as he draws the letter to a close, he makes it clear that he's not just simply talking about a, a completely free life in the sense that you, know, you can do what you like because the freedom that we've been called to is a freedom to serve God in the Spirit. And that's where the marvellously famous passage at the end of chapter 5 comes in. Verse 13, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbour as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. And he goes on to talk about living by the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, which is the fruit of holiness, the thing that the law was pushing towards, is now realised in Christians who walk by the Spirit. Uh, the act of the flesh, uh, the alternative, if we turn away from the act of the flesh and walk by the Spirit, will be the kind of holy people that God wants us to be. As he goes into chapter 6, he uh, gives illustrations of what that uh, might look like, love in action. And he finishes the whole letter um, in chapter 6, verses 11 to 18, by returning to the issue of uh, not circumcision, uh, but being a new creation in Christ. So um, it's quite a complex little letter and in the process of um, engaging with the practical issues that are confronting the Galatians, he raises some very important theological issues uh, about God's salvation purpose, about the, the covenants, the law, um, how we get right with God, how we make progress in the Christian life, how we uh, show forth holiness, etc., etc. Um, there are many, many things that emerge out of this uh, wonderful little letter. Now, what I think we might do is just stop uh, there and ask if people have got any questions uh, so far. What, just to anticipate, I'm going to go back to the beginning after we have, we're going to have a short break. I'm going to go back and talk to you about the destination and the time and place of writing 
and I'm also going to talk a little bit about um, why um, Paul wrote this letter but most importantly we're going to talk about some of the, the theological themes that I've already um, articulated. So this is, if you just want to ask any introductory questions uh, please feel free at this point. Thanks, David. Um, you said that one of the really key verses there was uh, chapter 5, verse 6, I think, where you emphasise the fact that the, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love and that that is, um, I suppose, a, a um, post-Jesus manifestation of what the war was trying to achieve in the first place. Can you just elaborate on that slightly for us? Can I what, sir? elaborate on that? Elaborate point? that. Okay. Um, Paul is very strong, isn't he, on the fact that we're simply saved by faith, by trusting in Christ and trusting in the gospel. So you could ask the question, well, how does that really change people? Um, you know, how, how does that make you a holy person? And, uh, and then you can ask a deeper question, well, whatever happened to the law? Is that just completely forgotten? Um, or, you know, is it fulfilled in some way? So the argument that Paul has here and in Romans is that the law is actually fulfilled by the Holy Spirit in the, in the lives of people who walk by faith in Christ. It's just this amazing um, thing you would never have even imagined that what God was really trying to achieve by all the ritual and regulations of the Old Testament can actually be fulfilled enough who walk not by the flesh but by the Spirit. So it, in one sense it's a very, very profound thought. At another, another level it's, it's very simple um, to, to direct you about the way forward. Um, but what he's simply saying is the way to make progress in the Christian life is not to keep rules and regulations. Um, it's not, certainly not to go back to the Mosaic law and, and, and think that that's, just, that's the way forward. Um, when you work out what it means to walk by faith in the Spirit and to express what the Spirit is teaching you, then you will be fulfilling God's, God's purpose, which was his original purpose for, for Israel. Is that okay? Sometimes Paul has these little gems which is just so profound that they, they take a lot of unpacking but when you do unpacking you say, oh, that's tremendous, that's such, a, such a, an insight. Hmm. Right. Well, thanks very much, David. It's a great joy to listen to you again. Uh, if you could, in the second half, bring out now, one, one thing that's always fascinated me about the Pauline epistles, and that, to me, it is one of the tests of the true inspiration of Scripture, is his extraordinary, as you say, insights that he has, but the amazing vocabulary and the phrases that he uses. Now, in Galatians, there aren't so many because it's heavily rabbinical, as obviously the, and it comes out of... of the Old Testament and the Torah and all that, but in Colossians and and uh, Ephesians, there's such a lot. Was he just an absolute polymath, you know, um, steeped in in uh, in Greek and Roman culture as well? Because he did come from Tarsus, which was mm. a Roman city. But none of that has ever explained satisfactorily to my mind 
where all these extraordinary concepts come, not only from the Old Testament, because that's, that predominates, but from every other conceivable concept that we just take for granted because we pick it up in Shakespeare and we, and we pick it up in Dickens and we pick it up <coughs> in our own Western culture that's imbued with the language of the Bible. Mm. If you could yeah. in the second half... Well, yes. Yeah. I mean, I'll just make a very quick comment about that and, and something else may emerge as we go along, but... I mean, you're absolutely right that Paul was completely steeped in the Old Testament. I mean, he was a theologian. He, he was taught by Gamaliel. He, he knew the Bible backwards. Uh, he, he thought it through very thoroughly from one perspective before he became a Christian. And then he had to rethink the whole thing again when he became a Christian because he realised that all these parameters and, and ways of thinking needed to be corrected. He certainly brought in... Um, perspectives from the from the Greco-Roman world to do with the emperor and authority and kingship and even justification and things like that have a have a relevance to the to the secular world he brought some of those perspectives in um, I think I think Paul was very much driven by um, the context and and therefore in Galatians and Romans particularly he develops a new vocabulary to deal with the problems that are arising and then in Colossians and Ephesians he wrote he, he brings up another vocabulary that's relevant to the, to the problems that, that are arising. But yeah, in a, you've got the right word. He was a polymath and uh, he was an amazing man. We need to thank God very much for him. And um, you might wonder just about the first couple of chapters, why do we need to spend time thinking about Paul's early history and, and, and why do we need to be convinced about his authority? And the answer to that is because he is so significant in the Bible. He's written so much of the New Testament. We need to be really convinced that he was inspired by Jesus to be his apostle uh, and we need to accept his authority in so many of these matters because he's been given this wonderful insight into the gospel that, uh, that we, that's, that's our treasure we'll stop I think we'll stop there um, we're going to have a 10-15 minute break there's tea and coffee up the back uh, there's some biscuits up there so if you want to pop up get a cup of tea if you want to come and see Dave come and do that